Welcome to episode 10 of Life in the Time of Corona, a podcast exploring the many ways to stay healthy and sane in these strange times. I'm Dr. Saul Rosenthal, a developmental and clinical health psychologist. Although most states are now lifting at least some of the restrictions brought on by COVID-19, life has not gone back to the way it was before the pandemic, and it may never get there. Adapting to ever-changing health demands, along with the uncertainty about our futures, is difficult for all of us. It might be even harder for people who are on the autism spectrum or who have difficulties with executive functions like attention, focus, and self-regulation. These are people who often rely on outside structure, routine, and support programs. Nowadays, those supports are almost certainly limited if not gone altogether. What can be done to help these individuals thrive with so much disruption in their lives? Today we are joined by Dr. Sophie Belenis, an occupational therapist who specializes in education and functional life skills for children and adolescents on the autism spectrum. She manages the Real Life Skills Program at the Neuropsychology and Education Services for Children and Adolescents Practice, which specializes in neuropsychological testing and integrative treatment. She also works for nonprofits bringing services to children in Tanzania, East Africa. Sophie works to help young people succeed as they transition into higher education or employment. Sophie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So what are some of the biggest changes that you're going through in your work and your life? Oh, that's a big question. As I'm sure it is for everyone, the changes seem to be really ever-present. Professionally, running the Real Life Skills Program was very hands-on pre-COVID. We did a lot of community-based coaching. We did shopping. We went to restaurants. We practiced writing the MBTAT. We did bus schedules. We did things like practicing Uber and Lyft. So it was all very, very functional and very, very social and in-person. So that transition to moving everything online has been pretty huge. Um, I'm seeing clients often more frequently throughout the week than I was. I was seeing students maybe for a two-hour session once a week. That's now switched to shorter, more frequent check-in sessions to make sure kids are meeting different goals. And those goals have changed. Those goals have really transitioned to more executive function-based goals. So focused on organization, initiation, the self-regulation, like you mentioned. So I think that's what I'd say. You know, it's just this, it's this whole switch to digital, which I think a lot of people are dealing with. What exactly is a functional or a real-life skill coach? A functional skill coach is somebody who is going to focus on those things that aren't necessarily thought about in school, aren't necessarily thought about as skills that need to be directly taught, but often very much do. So the process of going to a grocery store, how do you make a list? How do you navigate the aisles? How do you navigate the aisles with a shopping cart if you're going to have some issues with the visual spatial needs, the motor needs of all those things? What does a grocery store look like when you go in there? How is it set up? What are the clues for how it's set up? Is it something you can just look at? Do you need to be reading things? Where should you be looking for information? Um, So it's really focusing on building those life skills. I think that it's really individual. Every student I work with has really varied levels of knowledge in those different areas. And that's, that's for a bunch of different reasons too, right? Some children have learned a lot of it from their parents. Some children haven't. Some parents teach very different skills, and some kids might have an excellent idea of how to ride the T because they live in downtown Boston, but they haven't figured out how to go shopping independently, whereas somebody living further out, let's say in 
Ipswich, Massachusetts might not have a great idea of how to use public transportation. So a coach is really somebody who focuses in on where the skill deficits are and what needs to be taught. So it sounds like a lot of the skills are things that a lot of us might take for granted. So how to know when to wait for the tea to come Mm -hmm. or how long you can expect it to take to get to get you to where you're going, or as you said, like how, how a shop is laid out. These are things that a lot of us may be able to figure out a lot more easily, but it's, is it those executive functions that may be showing some deficits in these, these, uh, these kids and these uh, young adults? Is that what's going on? A lot of the time. Yeah. You know, I think that these are skills that some students or adolescents do learn by osmosis, as we say, you know, they, they watch and they pick it up and they figure it out. A lot of the students I work with, can learn them. They just need direct instruction. It's a different teaching method. And a lot of it is executive function. You know, executive function is that organization, that planning, that working memory, all of those things that go into organizing and creating goal-directed behavior. My favorite executive function definition is from a colleague of mine, Alyssa Talamo. And what she said was that executive functioning can be considered the conductor. So they are They are conducting the symphony. They're telling the flutes when to come in. They're telling the drums when to quiet down. And that's what your executive functioning skills do. They tell you when to get started on a paper, how to organize the assignment that's been given to you, how to set alarms so that you're going to remember it's time to do something. So I think that, yeah, there's definitely deficits in those areas that affect multiple life skills. And What are some of the things you're hearing from your clients about the challenges they're dealing with, given all of the restrictions? I would say a lot of the main things I'm hearing from my clients are that they didn't realize how much planning and how much organizing went into their school day that was being run by teachers. Teachers really are these magicians with executive function. They scaffold our kids starting in elementary school. In elementary school, they have visual schedules. They have timers. They have everything color-coded. They have suggestions written on the walls for what to do if you're feeling overwhelmed, what to do if you're feeling overtired. The whole environment is really designed to promote executive function. You know, you go to middle school, you have your lockers. They teach you how to use a weekly planner. They get you set up with binders for each course. You move to high school, it's graphic organizers. It's all these different things that are built in. And the reality is that with this really rapid transition to remote coaching and remote, sorry, remote education with this really quick shift into this remote learning period, that stuff has sort of disappeared. Kids are getting emails to all different email boxes. They're using multiple online platforms. Things are being announced really quickly. So they might say, you have a Zoom call with your English class tomorrow at 2 p.m. The schedules are ever changing. Things are coming kind of out of nowhere. And you don't have the teacher at the end of every class saying, now make sure to find two articles tonight for your history paper so that you're prepared to write it on Thursday. They really don't have that constant monitoring. And that's what I'm helping them build for themselves, figure out how to do that independently, which is a huge, it's a huge skill. Another big piece uh, for, for kids online is the social piece. And I really do wonder about that for children and adolescents who already may have some social skills issues. How is that playing out for the the clients you're working with? You know, I think in many ways it's playing out as you would anticipate. 
they're feeling isolated, they're feeling frustrated, there's a lack of sort of natural understanding of how to make this shift. And these are kids who have worked so hard. And that's what I tend to kind of go back to. These are kids who have worked so hard to make friends, have worked so hard to figure out how to be included in this school environment, the school atmosphere. And a lot of the students I work with have been successful at that. They've worked hard to develop these skills. They've been successful. They have friends. They have people who understand them and treat them beautifully in their classrooms. And this transition has been really tough. It's isolating. You know, these are students who have worked hard to be able to do it in person, but haven't focused so much on how to have a Zoom call, haven't focused so much on how to initiate a text message about a socially distanced hangout, let's call it. And it's it's tough. It's a lot. I think that one way that is less expected, that it's sort of manifesting, is that a lot of students are reaching out to each other and, and helping them through this process. You know, I've seen students set up group Zoom calls just to check in, or I had a student of mine had a birthday and his classmates planned a big drive-by birthday celebration. And so while there is the struggle and there is the isolation, I think it's important to notice sort of these small human acts of kindness that are coming out of it. And I think that there are community communities that are really just thinking of how they can help, thinking of how they can be an advocate within their own school system. One of the areas that I've been involved with is technology overuse. And one of the things that got me interested in that was I was working with a kid who was on the autism spectrum who was socially isolated. He didn't do well face-to-face, but he actually had a really nice social life online. The other side of that coin, of course, is technology overuse, where you often have kids have too much of their social life online. And there's some, at least belief, I'm not really sure of the research out there, but there's certainly some belief that kids on the spectrum are more at risk for that. Are you finding that there's more technology overuse with these kids at this point? Yes and no. There's definitely more technology use across the board, um, you know, with all of the classes and all of the assignments really being computer-based. For some students I'm working with, I do have, you know, some worries about technology overuse. I think that, as you said, in a lot of, for a lot of students, online friends are friends. Those are their friends. And that connection is hugely meaningful. That can become an issue if it's completely isolating yourself from the people in your life that you are seeing face-to-face. And I do worry about that with some students. I'd say that that one's really family-specific. It's it's difficult. <laughs> and it really is dependent on where you live, what your resources are, how you can get outside, how you can find alternatives to that. So I'd say it's student-dependent, but I'd say it's definitely something that I consider for all of my students, and that can be really difficult to not fall into when there are just so few options outside of that. And that's certainly true for for all the kids, not just the kids, but all of us, Yeah. when we're sheltering in place, as they put it. I think that online usage has increased significantly across the board. Yes, I would say that for myself personally, that is something that I am actively working to combat and not always doing successfully. That's always good to keep trying. <laughs> yes. So, so you're talking about a whole set of issues, realms, I suppose, that these kids may be 
struggling with in a different way, given the new restrictions. There's certainly the educational, there's the the day-to-day functional work, there's recognizing the importance of planning that other systems and other people used to do. There's the social issues. Now, I I recently read uh, a survey that was done by an organization called the Spark Foundation that looked at families with children on the autism spectrum, and they found that about 60% of those families reported severe disruptions in services and treatment. And less than half of those families reported that their children with autism had any good understanding of COVID and the related restrictions. So I know this is this is a such a hugely diverse group and, and yeah. can't just can't generalize. But given all of these disruptions in education, in services, in treatments, what are the unique challenges that that this these kids are facing, whether they're on the spectrum or have other executive function issues? Well, in some ways, I think they're unique. And in some ways, I think they're really what teenagers and young adults are all going through. It's the lack, it's the isolation. It's the learning on the fly. It's the having to figure out how to do things in the moment. I think that the executive function piece really does have a pretty huge effect if there's a deficit there mostly in terms of time. I really think time is what it comes down to. I think your typical high schooler is getting their assignments done. They're working on things. They're doing the recommended three to four hours per subject, which is sort of where, at least in Massachusetts, the recommendations are falling about three to four hours of work per subject per week. What I think is unique is the amount of time that it's taking for executive function tasks. So the students I work with are doing those three to four hours a week and then probably another seven or eight on trying to get organized, on trying to figure out how to do those three or four hours per class. And that's where I'm seeing just some real fatigue and some real exhaustion from this process. You know, I have students that I meet with for two full hours a week and all we're working on is the executive function of their schooling. And that's, that's a significant amount of time. That's time when other students are outside, are taking a break and watching a TV show that they enjoy. So I would say there's definitely fatigue in terms of just the effort needed to organize, the effort needed to set up a schedule, to break down assignments, to figure out how to set their weekly goals, to remember to check their three email accounts and their four online accounts and learning platforms that have been provided by the school. And this is in every school district, of course, but there are districts that have really a lot, just a lot of different things that need to be checked. And so I would say time. I'd say that it's taking up a lot of, of time. Time. It sounds like it's almost taking more time to prepare and organize a task than to actually do the task. For some of my students, absolutely. And that time problem and, and sort of a related fatigue seems to be exacerbated given the restrictions, given that folks are more or less isolated at home. Yes, I would, I would definitely agree with that. So given, given this fatigue, given some of the social isolation issues, what advice do you have for, for these kids, for these young adults, for their families? So I've been kind of trying to give out three simple things that families can do. The first thing I'm saying is create a schedule and create it on Monday morning. I really recommend that families have a meeting 
with each kid on Monday morning, I understand that's a huge ask and it just may not be possible. This can also be done Sunday night, but an early week meeting to lay things out. Figure out when you're going to do each assignment. Figure out what Zoom calls you have and have it all written down in one place. This helps kids visually see what each day is going to look like. And the reality is that it looks exactly like what they see at school. This is how we organize kids. It's how we've been organizing them since they were in kindergarten when it said in big block letters, math, PE, snack. That's how they're used to looking at their day. So creating that at the beginning of the week, I think is hugely important. I also think it's hugely important to have a much shorter, but another meeting at the end of the week to just quickly review how it went. Did this schedule work for you? Do you understand? That's big. That gives kids a starting point. And a starting point is huge if you have executive function issues because initiation is so hard. The next thing I think is really important is organizing physical and digital space. Physical space is going to look different for everyone, but if students can have somewhere where they specifically do their work that's set up that doesn't have a ton of clutter, that can be really helpful. And digitally, Organizing digitally is really difficult for all of us, and it's not necessarily taught explicitly in schools. I have students who it might take them 15 minutes to find an assignment they were working on on their computer because they don't know what they labeled it, because they probably just labeled it whatever the computer auto put into the field, which is the first sentence that they put on the page, which could be, what do I think about the Korean War? You know, it could be anything. It's not organized. So I think helping kids digitally organize their files on their computers, very helpful. Folder for English, a folder for world history, a folder for chemistry, and then teach them to put the date right in the name of the document. And a one word description of what it is. I think that's huge. So that physical and digital organization. And then the last thing I've been saying is just really putting in those movement breaks and putting in those just kind of brain breaks, as we call them, you know, get kids to go for a walk, get kids outside, And just really highlight that importance of not trying to power through everything because we are all getting fatigued. Yeah. So, so creating a schedule, making sure that it works, Mm -hmm. organizing the space, both physical and digital, and then putting in breaks, particularly for physical movement, getting up, clearing, clearing the brain. Those are all pieces of advice that can help these kids stay more or less on track. And of course, given the time of the year, I have to ask about the summer. How would you, uh, if at all, modify your advice for the summer? My advice for the summer for students has been to set goals. It's a really tricky summer right now because we don't quite know what to expect. The Department of Ed guidelines have come out about summer school. It's definitely going to look different. We don't know about summer camps, but the reality is that most of them will likely be closed at least through July. And so As school disappears and we need to replace it with something, my advice is set goals, set weekly goals, set monthly goals. Think about something that students could do to better the planet, better themselves, and better their own communities. Think about something kids can do that feels productive, no matter how much time it takes. There are some online volunteer opportunities. There are physical fitness goals you can set for yourself. I think that educating yourself on a topic of interest is a great goal to set up, especially with current events being so focused on education and and learning. So I would say setting goals is just a really big one. That's something that I plan to work on with my clients this summer is 
building up that process and that ability to set, monitor, and kind of self-evaluate on how you're meeting goals. I know that's a little bit broad, but with everything being so individual and everything being so up in the air, I think that it's important for all of us to have something we're working towards, something that we can go to in our free time. If parents say, you can't be on screens until eight, what are you going to do? They can go, okay, well, I have these goals I'm working on. Where should I start? So in many ways, you really can apply all of your pieces of, of advice, creating schedules, organizing space, making sure that they move. But you, it sounds like really the, a primary change will be the kid themselves or the, the young adult themselves will have to come up with their own goals, likely with, with assistance from the parents. But trying to keep the idea of, a, of, of the summer being organized around these goals Particularly, as you said, everything is is very up in the air. We don't know what's going to happen uh, with, there will be summer school. We don't quite know what's going to happen with camp, although a lot of the camps have now gone online, yeah. uh, which is something I actually did talk about in episode eight with Megan Gardner, who runs uh, a camp uh, and a year-long program called Guardian Adventures. So there, there will be some things, but as you're saying, just everything is so up in the air that having these goals makes makes a huge amount of sense. And then taking those goals and using them to organize the summer for these kids. As we wrap up, there are some one thing questions that I like to ask people who come on here. Great. So first, what, what is one thing that people should take away from our discussion? I would say that people should take away the fact that a huge amount of supports have just fallen away from these students. And while there might be frustration by, about how they are performing in these new circumstances, how they are organizing, it's really important to realize what they've lost and figure out how to add those in in a little bit of a different way. And one other thing that I really do want to mention is that there are positives from this three-week, sorry, this three-month pause on school. There is time here for students to focus on things that they never would have had time for before. Learning how to do things around the home, figuring out how to do computer-based learning, which is a reality of college for a lot of students, figuring out how to be bored, figuring out how to fill their time independently. Like there are positives here. Another one being that we're learning how kids can handle self-directed learning. A lot of these students may have been sent off to college and then the surprise comes halfway through the semester that the executive function needs of being at a university or a college are too much for this kid. We are learning that now when they're a freshman, when they're a sophomore, when they're a junior. This has given us information. And you know, executive function skills are something that in order to build, they need to be directly taught and students need the opportunity to practice them. That is how you build executive function skills. They need to learn how, and then they need to do it and do it until they learn how to do it. And we are seeing, we are getting a premature glimpse at how these kids would do independently. And there's a huge opportunity here to figure out what to focus on and to have them prepared in a different way than we've ever been able to prepare them. So I think, I guess I'm answering a little bit of a different question, but I think my takeaway is that there are positives and negatives here, and this is a unique opportunity to learn what our students need and figure out how to help them in a more future-oriented way. So it's it's actually also a theme that has come up in a couple of these episodes, the idea of this being a crisis, which 
provides opportunities. And what you're suggesting is one of those opportunities may be to allow or support the development of these skills looking at the future. So within what may be a more independent environment. Yeah, absolutely. So what is one thing that you're doing to take care of yourself? Uh, well, it's a big one. I'm gardening obsessively. I ended up moving out of the city to stay with some family for the last couple months. And we've been growing everything you can think of. We have peppers, tomatoes, okra, lettuces. So that's been my sort of brain break and my physical activity outside. I've learned a lot. I've set my own goals. I've met some of them and I've failed to meet others. And I think that's equally important. But yes, gardening has been my big reprieve. And finally, what is one thing that the coronavirus experience has changed forever? I think one thing that the coronavirus has changed forever is allowing us, especially as Americans, to see us as completely separate in a lot of ways from the rest of the globe. I think that we're in the middle of two vast oceans and we often see ourselves as separate and apart. And I think that there's a really strong reality that we are one world, that things that happen elsewhere absolutely affect us. I think that in the past, we have not felt that, especially in terms of public health. And I think that just an increase in the overall globalization of how we view the places and the people around us. So in some ways, we may be learning that we are actually more interdependent. Yes, I would say so. This is Life in the Time of Corona. You can subscribe to the show at iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Please rate the show and leave comments. Find out more at my website, Saul Rosenthal, PhD, and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Saul Rosenthal. That's Dr. Saul Rosenthal. Dr. Sophie Belenus is an occupational therapist specializing in educational and functional skills for adolescents and young adults on the autism spectrum and with executive function issues. She manages the Real Life Skills Program at the Neuropsychology and Education Services for Children and Adolescents Program. You can find out more at nesca-newton.com. That's N-E-S-C-A-Newton.com. I'll link to the site in the show notes, as well as to the Spark site describing their survey of how families with children on the autism spectrum are dealing with COVID. Sophie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you, listeners. I look forward to continuing the conversation on life in the time of Corona.